0: web at wagp.net
1: Good morning and welcome to the Light 88.7 FM Bible Live a live radio call in with Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star-887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogie. Study and show yourself approved
2: of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible line. This is an hour together where we open the word of God and we take people's questions as they've been studying scripture. And maybe there's a challenge they're facing and they want some help or a particular issue in their own personal life or ministry that they'd like biblical counsel on. If we can help, we will do the best we can by God's grace and with His help. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the number locally is 525 1859. We have people who listen each week through the internet. We have the Station W-A-G-P, on the worldwide internet, and people can hear all over the world. And it's a great tool. You can download an app into your phone as well, so that as you're traveling in areas where the station can't be received, you can continue to enjoy it and listen to it. Uh, and so there's apps for the Droid and Apple phones. And if you're an internet listener and would like to call in, it's 877 877- WAGP 980, 877, our call letters, WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. Our email address is tbl for the Bible line at WAGP.net. And if you do call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. Rick, as always, it's great to be here for the Bible line.
1: It is indeed, Pastor, and we have a number of uh, questions lining up, so let's get to them right now. Uh, this was left over from last week. Uh, a listener wanted to know: Should the church's finances be open to the congregation, and is there any biblical evidence one way or the other? Well, I
2: think so. Uh, let, me, let me just turn to a passage that comes to mind in Second Corinthians chapter eight. Maybe we can think our way through this together. Uh, this is a great chapter on money, where the Apostle Paul uh, addresses such issues as you're raising and he says now brethren we wish to make known to you the grace of god which has been given in the churches of macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality for i testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave of their own accord begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints so this chapter if you know it it, it deals with not only motivation for giving indeed uh the motivation that he gives is that for you know that the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich Uh, and by the way this is a verse that is sometimes misquoted by our prosperity theology uh men who say well you know god God came so that you could become rich, and if you give money to my ministry, well, you're going to become rich. And, of course, they tear it out of its context, and he's reminding us that Christ left the glory and splendor of heaven so that um, we could become rich spiritually, that Christ impoverished himself by taking on human flesh and becoming obedient to the point of death even on a cross, as Paul will tell the Philippian church, but he did that so that we could become rich spiritually. But that becomes the motivation for our giving because God gave to us in Christ and provided salvation because of that great grace shown to us. We should respond in uh, to that grace with a heart of obedience. So in this chapter, he deals with this uh, offering that's being collected to be given to the poor churches uh, in He goes on and he describes how the administration of that gift will take place. And I think there's some timeless lessons here that we could apply to your questions in terms of, you know, a church's um, public integrity in dealing with finances. In verse uh, 16, he says, But thanks be to God, who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted our appeal, but... Being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. And we have sent him along with him, the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. So Titus, as he's going to explain, a man of great integrity whom they knew, had with him another brother, and he's going to be talking here about the administration of this gift that they had collected. Uh, this brother who was well-known for his preaching of the gospel. And then he goes on. He says, and not only this, but he also has been appointed by the churches to travel with us. So he's got Titus. He's got this well-known brother who's uh, seen for his ability to preach the gospel. And they're traveling with Paul and the missionary group in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show your readiness, taking precaution that no one should discredit us in the administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with him our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things. So there's Titus, there's his well-known brother in the preaching of the gospel. And then he mentions a a third brother, equally impeccable in his credentials, who will also be involved in the administration of Of this gift. So, Paul is really cautious here. He wants to make it very clear that our desire is to honor the Lord. Uh, We want him to be glorified, but we also want to be honorable not just in the Lord's sight, but in the sight of men. And so, there is a timeless principle right there. I, I think churches need to take great pains to do what's right. Sometimes it may seem time-consuming or a nuisance, but with the highest degree of integrity so that no one could ever question how finances are being handled or the manner in which they're being handled, um, you take those great steps. And I would just say a leader who resists financial accountability, and we get a lot of calls here on the Bible line. People call us and say, well, you know, the pastor manages the finances and, He handles it. Well, Paul was the pastor here, and he's not handling the finances. He has Titus and a brother well known in preaching the gospel, and a third brother who's known in his ability to be a good administrator, and they're handling the finances, not the pastor. In fact, when you see Paul in his uh, three missionary journeys, and on one occasion, he has a group of men who carry the purse, he doesn't carry the money bag himself. Even when people come up to me on a Sunday morning and they say, oh, pastor, I, I forgot to put my, my tithe in the uh, offering bag. Can you take it? And I'll say, well, no, you need to give it to someone with a badge on, and they'll, they'll handle the gift. Uh, pastors need to be a 1,000% above reproach, and they need to be able to uh, lead their church in a way so that there's nothing hidden that people who are members have access to know how the money's being spent and where it's being spent. And again, someone who resists that financial accountability is typically themselves suspect. And so it's important for churches to uh, let their members know what their budgets are, how the money's being spent. And they have that right. And it's it's an honorable testimony uh, to the Lord when it's handled in that fashion. So Anyway, we get a lot of calls and questions in this realm where you know, we hear of you know, what I would consider improprieties in terms of how money is being managed, and that's not good, that's not healthy, and if a church hides their finances and won't tell you where the money's going, and certainly if a church has one person doing it where there's no accountability and no one looking over their shoulder or if the church has the pastor doing it, that's a huge mistake, because that's a violation of the biblical model that we see taught here in 2 Corinthians 8, not to mention what Paul modeled in the Acts of the Apostles. So uh, it's very, very important that this be handled honorably. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick.
1: All right. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at And Leslie from Beaufort writes, If everyone is born with a sin nature, making us all sinners immediately upon birth, with or without having actually committed a sin, why did Jesus not inherit a sin nature from his human side, thus making him a sinner? And secondly, how can we say God became human like us, was tempted like us, but unlike us, did not succumb to temptation? Jesus was God and could not possibly sin even if he'd wanted to, so we cannot compare ourselves to him or even hold ourselves up to the same standard as he held himself. We can't hold ourselves to the same standard as Jesus, despite he was human, because he's uh, God and incapable of committing sin. So why try to live up to that standard?
2: Well, these are good questions, and there's a lot of questions there, so let me just briefly comment on them, because we could spend hours just on this. In fact, in my course in Christology uh, that can be had through Search the Scriptures, we deal with these issues in tremendous depth. We spent weeks on them, but when we come to Romans chapter 5 and our study of the book of Romans... We're going to explore some of these issues in, in great, with great care and great depth. Uh, we're working our way for listeners who are new uh, through the book of Romans, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and when you come to Romans five twelve, it deals with the whole issue of our relationship to Adam and to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he talks about how through one man, Adam, death spread to the whole world. But then he talks about through another single act, through the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, how his one act of death on a cross could have an effect on the entire world. So Paul draws a parallel between one act and uh, touching the whole world and a second act touching the whole world. Now, Jesus obviously was different from Adam. Now, Adam, when he was created, he was created perfect. There was no sin in Adam. Uh, there was a creaturely perfection to him, but Adam was indeed created. Jesus is not created. he's eternal. Uh, Adam had a free will, and Adam in his free will chose to rebel against God and inherited a sin nature. And The sin nature is passed on through the Father, and we'll discuss that, and we'll talk even about some of the medical issues behind it when we come to Romans chapter 5. And so Jesus did not have a human father. God, the Holy Spirit, overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary. And the eternal deity of Christ had inseparably combined together with sinless humanity. Uh, Jesus is God in a human body. He's God in human flesh. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he's the only one who ever lived who never sinned. Uh, Were his temptations real? Uh, Yes, they were. Now, again, this is a whole other issue, what's called the peccability and the impeccability of Christ. Peccability says that Jesus could sin and he didn't sin. And there are some Christians who have held that position uh, through the course of church history. They affirm the sinlessness of Christ, that he never sinned, but they said potentially he could have sinned. Uh, There's another way to look at it, and it's what's called impeccability which says, not only did Jesus not sin, that he couldn't sin. And some people, when they hear that, they say, well, then his temptations were not real. No, they were real. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, but his divine human nature were inseparably brought together into one person. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Dr. Pentecost, one of my professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, he's still teaching. He's in his mid-90s, and he waddles to class every day, but he still teaches remarkably. Uh, He was one of the great Bible scholars of really the 20th century. But he used to share this illustration with us as students. He would say, think of the divine nature of Christ as a solid iron beam. And then he said, think of the human nature of Christ attached to that solid beam as a piece of solder. He said, now, The solder is mixed in with the iron beam. He said if you take a piece of of solder, obviously it's very pliable, very bendable. But when it's inseparably combined to the iron beam, while solder is still solder, it cannot bend. And so the human nature of Christ experienced true legitimate temptations. But I believe, as I'll demonstrate when we come to the second half of Romans 5, That the temptations that Jesus Christ received were not to show if he could sin, but to demonstrate that he could not sin. And so, again, we're called to be a model like him, and he has called us to rely upon the Holy Spirit, who is our helper. Why should we want to follow him? Well, number one, because he commands it. Uh, God's desire and design for us is to become like Jesus Christ. And the motivation for doing that is the great love that he has shown us. Uh, John will write, it's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So he reminds us the initiative didn't begin begin with man. It began with God. And so God sent his son. And then he goes on to say, we love God because he first loved us. So that becomes the motivation for obedience. Great question. Let's go to the next one, if we will, Rick. And we appreciate your questions. And if you do have one, you can pick up the phone and call us locally at 525 1859. I, our next one also came in through email, so let's address that.
1: Indeed. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're going to give you two questions because one is asking asking for a little uh, uh, expansion on uh, this uh, particular question here. Um, they had been traveling through the area. She writes, uh, she's Linda from uh, Florence, Wisconsin, and she writes that on August 21st, she was traveling from Virginia to Indiana and heard you speaking on our radio station, and you spoke of how many churches are accepting gays in the pulpit. Um, Her church, PCUSA Church, has done so, and it breaks her heart, she writes, uh, and says your sermon was a most convicting sermon on the subject she had ever heard and would like um, her husband and others to hear now that she's back home. And so... uh, Maybe you could tell her how she could get a copy of that and then address this uh, question, which was uh, also an outpouring of that message. Um, She writes, I have been dialoguing with a youth. He says he is not saved nor wants to be because of the biblical view of homosexuality because his uncle is gay and says that he was born that way and can't change even if he wanted to. The student read in some psychology book, secular, of course, that some people are born homosexual. This person writes, I was trying to do some research on the subject but didn't come up with anything other than very flawed research supporting this theory of being born gay. Other comments on one of the articles I read all basically said the same. Uh, Why would I choose this lifestyle where people would hate me and where there's so much bigotry and prejudice against gay people? I must have been born this way. Do you have any credible references that dispute this theory with scientific fact that homosexuality is a lifestyle choice and not genetic? And also, why would someone who hates that lifestyle want to continue in it, even if they do feel they are born gay?
2: Well, these are good questions. Let me me first respond to uh, our caller, our listener here from Wisconsin, who is obviously listening through the Internet or through one of our apps. And you can, again, pick up WAGP anywhere in the world and on your phone. Uh, And uh, we will send her a complimentary copy, a DVD, CD, so that she can listen to that sermon and share it there in her PCUSA church, uh, the Presbyterian Church United States of America. Uh, By the way, not to be confused with the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America. That's a conservative branch of evangelical Bible-believing Christians. And not to be confused with uh, the ARP, the American Reformed Presbyterian Church, which are also a group of Bible-believing Christians. Christ-centered Presbyterians. The PCUSA, for the most part, is an apostate denomination. Uh, They have officially in all of their seminaries denied the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible. So none of their seminaries, not one, that you will attend uh, will say that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Now, you need to be careful because very often these liberal preachers in our day use the language of historic Christianity, but they redefine what they mean when they use the same terminology. So when they say, well, we believe the Bible's inspired, they don't mean the same thing that the Bible teaches in regards to its inspiration. They may say it's inspired in spots, and obviously they have to be inspired to spot the spots of what parts are true and what are not true. Uh, They had this ongoing debate in that particular denomination, as in other mainline Protestant denominations, over whether homosexuality is right, whether it should be accepted as an alternative lifestyle, whether people should be received into the membership, whether ordination should take place for people who are openly homosexual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if you believe in the Bible as the infallible, inerrant word of God, there is no debate. Because the Bible is crystal clear. So in this sermon, is it okay to be gay? Which, by the way, if you go to bufort.org, you will find it there, and you can download it into your iPod or on your computer for free. You can also watch it uh, live stream from our website, and it will air again uh, very soon uh, on Search the Scriptures, and then it will be up on the STS website. If you also go to YouTube and just type in, is it okay to be gay, Carl Brogy, it will bring up the sermon and you can watch it on YouTube as well. So there's some avenues there. But when someone calls in and asks specifically this person from another state, we're going to send her a complimentary DVD so she has it. Now, the, the latter question here in reference to, is someone quote unquote born gay? And the answer is no. And is there any credible evidence to show otherwise? Well, it always comes back to the Bible, number one. Forget all of the scientific studies. Because science may have the latest word, but they don't have the last word. It was the opinion of the scientific community for a long time that the world was flat. But you had Christians of the day who had no scientific evidence or proof to demonstrate otherwise, and they said it was round. And they said it was round on the basis of Scripture, because the Bible described the earth as a circle, not as a flat planet. And so while science may have the latest word, they don't have the last word. But even in the realm of science, uh, they indeed um, do not agree. There was a study done in the 90s by Dr. Simon Levy, and I remember uh, seeing the summary of his uh, study on Nightline, Ted Koppel had had covered it, and he had done a study on 41 cadavers, um, 19 of which had AIDS and were homosexual men. The others were assumed to be heterosexual men, and he found that in a certain segment of the brain, a certain gene or chromosome um, in the hypothalamus of the brain had been somehow altered, and therefore there was a genetic cause. Well, number one, I was suspect, and not only me, Ted Koppel was suspect because the study was done by all gay men, all gay scientists. So I think there might have been a little prejudice there. But um, the evidences uh, that he gave were very inconclusive. Uh, He saw it altering in some of the men, and in other men, instead of, uh, you know, the the hypothalamus being smaller, it was larger. Uh, So you know, I don't think it was very conclusive even scientifically. And then a number of men from Columbia University of great credibility came out just a few years ago saying at this point there is absolutely no scientific evidence to show that there is some kind of gene or chromosome that causes same-sex attraction. They said there's no evidence at this point. And well, again, lay aside all that. Let's just say next week they came out, some guys from Harvard and Columbia and other credible you know, medical schools and scientific studies, and they said there is. There is scientific evidence, chromosomal evidence to show that someone is born this way. Well, again, I would just say they're wrong because while science may have the latest word, they don't have the last word. And for God to make this a moral issue makes it very clear that this is not something that you are born with. Uh, In passages like 1 Corinthians 6, the apostle wants us to know how God feels, not just about this sin, but other sexual sins. And he says, do not be deceived. And so if a study comes out and says, no, people are born this way, it's not their fault. This is natural and normal. Paul would say, don't be deceived. Uh, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. So he lists a number of different sins here. Pornea, which refers to premarital sex. Uh, He speaks of idolatry. And idolatry in the Bible is not just sitting down and worshiping at a statue. It's anything that you would put above God. So there is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. Immorality, Paul says, to so the Colossians, are is idolatry. So there are many expressions of idolatry of things people put above God. And then he mentions moikeia, which is extramarital sex. And then he uses two words, effeminate and homosexuals. Um, now, in some translations, like the ESV, they just bleed the two together. But there are two distinct words in the Greek text. And I think rightly so. One describes um, what we might call a male prostitute or the passive partner in a homosexual relationship, and then the other, the aggressive partner. And he goes on, he lists thieves, covetous drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of these people, he says, shall inherit the kingdom of God. But then the next verse gives us great hope. In such were some of you. God can save anyone. And of course, in the sermon that I preach, is it okay to be gay We talk about not only what the Bible says and some of the arguments that people use uh, to dismiss the authority of the Bible, and uh, they say our reasoning is faulty, and I go through virtually all of the arguments they use, uh, but one of the things that we talk about too is that if this is indeed a moral issue, then God would be unjust uh, if this were purely a genetic issue and, and not a moral issue, then God would be unjust to hold people accountable. That would be like God saying, "Well, if you have cancer, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God." Now, that's a disease. You know, we call alcoholism, for instance, a disease. God here speaks of drunkards. It's not a disease. Now, your body may be diseased through alcohol, but alcoholism is not a disease. If it were a disease, it's no different from cancer or other physical challenges the human body can face, where God can hold you morally accountable. So it's not a disease, it's, it's a moral choice that people make. And so the Bible is very clear on this issue, and the Bible must be our final authority. And so we have mainline denominations that have drifted. Uh, liberal Presbyterians, uh, my, they're they're ordaining people in the PCUSA right now who don't even believe in the deity of Christ. I would say to any born-again Christian, you should leave that denomination immediately, because every time you drop money in the basket, you're going to help to support liberal causes, liberal seminaries that is propagating a false gospel. If you're in any denomination that has gone apostate, and left its historical Christian roots, then find a Bible-believing church and don't waste another day in it. But in that sermon, I also go through some of the reasons why this thing is unfolding so fast and why homosexuality is gaining such wide acceptance. And there's a reason taught in Romans 1 that I walk through And uh, so you might want to listen to that sermon, org. Great questions. Let's go to a live caller who's waiting on the air. 525-1859 is the number if you'd like to call, or 877-WAGP-980. Good morning, caller. You are live
1: on the air. Thanks for calling.
0: Good morning, Pastor. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, Pastor, um, a a question. Uh, The position of elder, and uh, if an elder operates with a gift of pastor-teacher. My question is, is pastor-teacher to be understood only as a gift, or is pastor-teacher, in another sense, also the actual position?
2: That is a fantastic question. Um, No, uh, there is a spiritual gift called pastor-teacher, and when you look in Ephesians chapter 4, it's kind of interesting because he speaks of you know, every uh, joint in the body that uh, works together uh, for the building up of the body so that we can reach the maturity that God has destined for us to reach in Christ. Um, but prior to that, he named some leadership gifts that are found in the church, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And here he's not speaking of offices. Now, there is the office of apostle that is distinct from the gift of apostleship. And very often, uh, context, of course, determines. Now, in English, sometimes uh, there's a third use, too. There's There's the gift of apostle. There's the office of apostle. And then there's someone who's just a messenger, and they're all, they're all used in Greek, the same word, apostolos. And in some languages, they translate it the same, and it's just left up to the reader. In most of our English texts, we distinguish it. So Epaphroditus is called an apostle in the Greek New Testament, but in our English Bibles, we call him a messenger because he didn't fill the office and nor did it appear that he had that gift of church planning, but he was sent as a messenger on behalf of some churches on one occasion. And so these are all gifts that are mentioned here and they're mentioned in singular fashion. When you come to the word pastor and teacher, it's interesting because the Greek changes. He gave some as apostles and chi, some as prophets and chi, same word for and. and so he uses the word and, and then when he comes to pastors and teachers, he uses a different word, uh, connecting the two and separately. And so we speak of the gift of pastor slash teacher. Now, there's the gift of pastor, there's the gift of teaching, there's the gift of pastor-teacher. Now, the gift of pastor-teacher or the gift of pastor is not to be confused with the office of pastor or elder. And in the New Testament, the word elder, uh, pastor, uh, bishop, uh, presbyter, depending on your, your translations, are all referring to the same office, not different offices, but the same office. Uh, So, for instance, um, in the two central passages in the New Testament, where the qualifications for an elder are given, which would be 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, the words are used interchangeably. He says it's a trustworthy statement that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. And then he tells us what an overseer must be. In the parallel passage, let me turn to the book of Titus chapter 1 it's interesting how he words it there for this reason I left you in Crete that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city and then he says namely and he starts giving some qualifications and then he says in verse 7 and he uses a different word for the overseer or the bishop you could translate it in the old English so here the word elder episcopos and overseer, uh, are used in interchangeably of the same office. Paul does the same thing in Acts chapter 20. Now, with that said, when he gives the qualifications for an elder, um, he, he walks through very carefully. Let me just read it. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he must do. It's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. And then he says, able to teach. He has to have the ability to teach, not the gift, but the ability. And there is a distinction. Why? Because what he's describing here really are marks of maturity, marks of proven character in the leader's life. And so, for instance, when you think of teaching, for instance, there's the office of teacher, which James describes, where he says, let not many of you aspire to be teachers, knowing that you will incur a stricter judgment. Well, wait a minute, James. What do you mean? You're, you're telling me that I shouldn't aspire to the office of teacher? What if I have the gift of teaching? Uh, I mean, aren't, aren't I supposed to use my gift? Yes, you are. But there's a distinction between the office, where a pastor or a pastor-teacher uh, functions professionally in that. And James says, just know you're going to incur a stricter judgment. And that's, of course, what the writer of the Hebrews says when he talks about submitting to the leaders in the church uh, who give watch over your souls and who will give an account. So when someone becomes a leader in the church and when someone opens the Word of God and says, basically, let me explain what God says, and they mishandle it because they're lazy or sloppy or want to make some point that's not taught in the Word of God, they're going to give an account for the way they've handled God's Word. So in that sense, James says, you know, if you're going to aspire to this office, don't do it flippantly. Make sure this is something God's really called you to. Now, there's the gift of pastor-teacher that people are supposed to use. If, And a woman could have the gift of pastor or pastor-teacher. Now, a woman can't serve in the office, but she can serve in, the, uh, in a capacity of a pastor-teacher in ministry to women and children. So there are women who have teaching gifts. They're not supposed to, like Beth Moore, preach in a church on Sunday morning. She's way out of bounds. And that's why we would never use her material. And I'm not alone in that. Alistair Begg, who is coming to do our missions conference here in October, he would never use her material. John Piper would never use her material. John MacArthur would never use her material. Why? Because she's out of bounds. She's modeling for women something that goes beyond and against what God has called women to do in the church. But a woman might have the gift of pastor or pastor teacher and shepherding women, or the gift of teaching and teaching women, or the gift of pastor teacher and doing both. But that's different from the office. And so, when you think of teaching, too, here's another dimension to it. Not only is there the office and the gift, then there's the uh, the responsibility. And so the writer to the Hebrews, for instance, and I think by the time I share this, you'll see where I'm going. In Hebrews chapter 5, he says concerning him, 5.11, speaking of Melchizedek, we, we have a lot to say, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. We'd like to be able to teach you a whole lot more, but the fact is you can't receive it. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers... You, and the word you there is plural. Uh, In the Old English of the King James, there's a singular you, uh, thou, and a plural you, which we translate you. And so sometimes if you're reading a verse and you don't read Greek and you're not sure is that singular you or plural you, take out the Old English because in Old English we had a singular you, thou, and we had a plural you, you. Uh, So here it's you or y'all. Uh for this time y'all, you as a congregation ought to be teachers. Oh wait a minute. I thought we're not to aspire to the office of teacher. Well, you're not. Uh, uh not flippantly. Uh I thought we don't all have the same gifts. You don't. Not everyone is an eye, not everyone is an ear. God has comprised the body so that there's all kinds of different gifts and we don't all have the same gifts. But we all have the same responsibilities. So while some people in the body of Christ have the gift of mercy, some uh, have that gift. All of us are called to show mercy. Some people have the gift of evangelism. All are called to do the work of an evangelist. Some serve in the office of teaching. Uh, Some have the gift of teaching, but all of us ought to be teachers. That is, we ought to mature enough in the faith through our study and exposure to the Word of God— so that we can answer basic questions. That's a mark of maturity. So when you take that thought back to uh, 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, where it's mentioned in both accounts, an elder ought to be apt to teach. Why? Because he's not to be a new believer. He's not to be an, uh, a new believer, and neither is he to be an immature believer. He is to have grown enough in his walk with Christ where he is able to answer and defend basic Bible Doctrine. And so that's a mark of maturity. Now understand too, a little bit later on in this book, um, he goes on and he describes that even amongst elders, not all elders are the same that different elders have different responsibilities. And so he says, for instance, let the elders, this is in 517 of 1 Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So he's arguing that amongst elders, there's some who have a special call and focus to preaching and teaching the word of God. Why would that be? Because they're gifted in that area. So ideally, when you look for a lead elder in a church, he's gifted with the gift of pastor, teacher, or the gift of teaching, because he's able to open the scriptures and feed beyond the common responsibility that we all share, but to feed the flock of God. There will be other elders in the church who do not have that gift, but they are to be mature enough where they are sound in doctrine. And they're able to teach, uh, but they may not have that as the focus of their ministry. Their, their eldership will take on uh, different responsibilities as they help to shepherd the flock of God. Uh, today, and even when you come to the Revelation, the second and third chapter, when Jesus addresses uh, seven churches, he addresses what today we would call the senior pastor. Now, again, in English, um, You know, we're limited, but it's not limited in Greek. And the word angelos, you know, we think only in terms of an angel. That's how we translate it in the English text. But there are other cases in the New Testament where the word angel doesn't refer to a literal angel in Greek, but to a person, to a regular person. And so John the Baptist is called an angelos. His disciples are called angeloi in the plural, messengers, messengers. Uh, that's what the word angel means, a messenger. And when Jesus addresses uh, the seven churches, he addresses not the whole group of elders, but a single elder. If I asked you who the uh, elder of the church is, um, I think it's uh, called uh, a Stone, yeah, Stonebriar Church in Texas. You'd say, oh, that's Chuck Swindoll. Yeah, he's the pastor of that church. Well, he is but he also has a number of other elders who work with him. If I asked you uh, who the pastor of First Baptist Church Atlanta was, you'd say, well, oh, Charles Stanley, he's the pastor of that church. Yes, he is, but he also has a group of elders that work with him. Uh, if I, if you were asked, well, who's the pastor of Community Bible Church? You'd say, oh, Pastor Carl Brogy. Yes, but I have a number of elders that work with me. And so what you find in the New Testament is that there's a leader amongst equals. Uh, and Jesus recognized that, obviously, when he addresses the, the what we would today in 21st century terminology call the senior pastor when he addresses the seven churches. So when a church looks for a senior pastor, if I can use that term, the point pastor, a leader amongst equals, then they should be looking for someone who is gifted, and called of God into full-time ministry. There are some elders in the church that are businessmen, or or uh, they are carpenters, and plumbers, or doctors, and they are different professionally. And they're not called of God to earn their living from the gospel. But some are, as 1 Timothy 5.17 recognizes. Not just honor, but double honor. And the double honor, he goes on, is that they're financially remunerated. And that they're earning their living from the gospel because God has put that call on their life, so um a hope- help listener I think they just hung up, oh. and they were going to just listen all right so, yeah. very good,
1: all right five two five one eight five nine toll free eight seven seven nine two four seven nine eight zero or email us at t b l at w a g p dot net Our next listener has uh dictated their question he has heard. People say that you need to speak in tongues, as an evidence you're filled with the Holy Spirit. What scriptures address whether this is true or not? Well, uh, let
2: me just say, too, if this person calls back, we will email them with a handout that I did called the Sign Gifts of the New Testament. And I go through four gifts that we call sign gifts, which are uh, healing, miracles, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And what is interesting of the 20 gifts listed in the New Testament, some count 19, most would count 20. Of the 16 non non-sign gifts, there is a common responsibility. And this is kind of going back to what we've just been discussing. Some people have the gift of mercy. We're all called to show mercy. Some have the gift of teaching or pastor teaching, two distinct gifts. All are called ultimately to mature and to carry on the responsibility of being a teacher. Some have the gift of serving. All are called to be servants and so forth. Um, when you look at the non sign gifts, there's a common responsibility and shared commands that every believer has. And that's why part of learning to discover your spiritual gift is just to obey what you know. Because as you obey what you know and keep the commands of the New tes- Testament and mature, what will happen is your spiritual gift will begin to manifest itself. Out of those responsibilities, there'll be an area of strength that will, in a singular way, uh, very much show itself that this is where God has put his hand so that you can focus your area of service in the local church. By the way, if someone goes to my website at searchthescriptures.org, I wrote a a test on how to discover your spiritual gift. I did my doctoral dissertation on the subject, and um, I created a test of 128 questions that you can fill out, and it can potentially score where your gift might be. And you can find that at Search the Scriptures, all one word, searchthescriptures.org. It'll take you about 25 minutes, and when you uh, take the exam, the Spiritual Gifts uh, Inventory Exam, don't answer it like you would want it to be, answer it like you are. Just be honest with yourself. And in the end, it will score you, the computer, and you may discover that there's some areas of exceptional strength, and that might be a place to start in terms of the discovery and the implementation of your your spiritual gift in the local church. It might be that there's no areas that surface, and that's probably because you either are a new Christian and haven't had enough time to grow, or you've been a Christian a long time, but you've remained a babe in Christ. And that's unfortunate, but that often happens uh, with believers. But uh, in that handout, uh, the sign gifts of the New Testament, uh, one of the gifts I cover is tongues. And this is, I think, an eight or ten page handout. And so if you uh, email us, go to searchthescriptures.org, ask Dr. Brogy a question, provide your email address. We'll actually, it will show it, and we will email that back to you, okay? So if you go to. Um, Search the scriptures, and there's a place to be able to contact us. And sometimes we get questions from different parts of the country and different parts of the world that I can't physically take the time to type out all the answers. Some of them I do, but uh, a large majority of them, I, we, we send them here to the Bible line, and they're answered along with other questions that are dictated in live calls that we receive each week. Uh, I I just don't have the time to, you know, write out an answer to every question that people want to ask. And sometimes I will send them a link to a sermon I've preached on the subject, so they can listen. Most of my sermons are about an hour long, and they can really get an in-depth answer. Or sometimes I've taught a course on a particular subject. So I have like a 10-page handout on this, which I will send to anyone who's Interested if you go to the Search the Scriptures website, click on and que- ask Dr. Brogy a question and say, I would like to receive the signs and gifts handout, and we will email that to you. And I walk through this subject of, of, of uh, tongues. Uh, when you are in 1 Corinthians, well, let me just briefly answer it. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul is dealing with some Christians who are out of balance in the way they thought about spiritual gifts. And he reminds them that for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and he's creating an analogy here between your physical body and the spiritual body, your physical body is one body, but it's got, you know, toes and fingers and eyes and ears and a nose and so forth. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Be we Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, "Because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, is it not for any reason a less part of the body? No, and if the ear should say "Because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any or less a lesser part of the body and of course no it's it's not. Every member is important. so when he comes to the end of this chapter, he says, "Now you are christ's body, and individually members of it, and God, God makes the decision on who gets what gifts." has appointed in the church apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues, and then he asks some rhetorical questions, All are not apostles, are, are they? Of course not, not everybody has a gift of apostle. we need more than just church planners. all are not prophets or preachers, are, are they? Of course not, If everybody were a preacher, you know who who who'd pass out the bulletins and greet the new members and who would care for the children in the nursery and who would care for the sick? All are not teachers, are they? Of course not. All are not workers of miracles, are they? No. All are, do not have gifts of healings, do they? Of course not. All do not speak with tongues, do they? No. So if everybody spoke with the gift of tongues, that would be violating what God says here. And so for people to make it, that a sign that you're either saved, as originally Pentecostalism did, Or more commonly today, a deeper work of the Holy Spirit, what they call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what Paul has already said in this chapter, we've already all been baptized by the Spirit. We've all had the baptism of the Spirit, and speaking in tongues is not a sign of it. Um, Listen, uh, if you want to see a sign of a deeper work in your life, a sign of maturity, it's not whether you speak in tongues, it's how you handle the one tongue that is in your head that's what James says, is he thinks of maturity. So not everybody's going to speak in tongues, but again, that's a real short answer. Get the handout, and I think you'll find it helpful. I think we got time for a few more questions that have been dictated, someone's waiting on the air, so let's go there.
1: Indeed, let's go to our live caller now. Thanks for holding. Good morning, you're on the Bible line.
0: Hi, good morning, Pastor. Thanks for taking my call, and thank you for doing what you do.
1: Well, uh, we're glad you called today. How can we help?
0: Thank you. I, uh, An acquaintance of mine on Facebook posted something about... Uh, scientists and historians debunking things that the bible say and this particular one was a clip from an author of a book and i saw this on youtube he was saying something to the effect of satan is a word derived from old hebrew text the actual word was satan meaning adversary now I didn't pay any attention to that because I know Satan is an adversary, and if I want to call him Satan or Lucifer or whatever other name he has in the Bible, it's still the same thing. He's bad and he's an adversary. Now, I'm going to hang up as I'm working, I'm driving, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on this.
2: Okay, good question. Yeah, there's all kinds of YouTube theologians out there, and uh, there's some that are, are good, and some, in Peter's words, they distort the Scriptures to their own destruction. And people will, you know, do mental gymnastics. In fact, if someone has heard my sermon recently, is it okay to be gay? I give some examples of this. Um, But there are many names that are given to Satan in the scripture. He's called the devil. And the word diabolus means accuser or slanderer. He's called Satan. Uh, The word Satan means adversary. He's called the tempter. Uh, he's called by the Lord Jesus, if you remember, uh, a liar and a murderer. Uh, Peter likens him, I think it's First Peter 5, 8, to a growling lion that wants to you know, eat someone up. In, in the Old Testament, he's called the serpent. And by the way, uh, he's identified uh, that same terminology in the Revelation as the serpent. Um, Paul describes him as an angel of light. Um, He calls him uh, the God of this world who's blinded our eyes, uh, blinded the eyes of unbelievers. Um, He's called by the Lord Jesus the ruler of this world. Um, In Ephesians, Jesus calls him the prince of the power of the air. Um, he's called the dragon in the revelation. I'm trying to think what else he's called. He's called the, the prince of this world also in, in John's gospel. So there's a lot of terms that are used to describe him, but denying his existence or that he was created or made up. I mean that you can't read the Bible and walk away with no devil. The devil is a very real created angel. He's created. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's created, and he was created perfect. His fall is described in two central passages in the Bible, Isaiah 14, and 14 times 2 is 28, Ezekiel 28. That's how I remembered them. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are the two central passages that describe his fall, and if someone's interested in looking at those, I have a sermon on them. Uh, in if you go to our Genesis series, which is online, since that has played on the air, you can download the sermon on Genesis 3, uh, 1 through 8. And if you listen to that sermon, i walk through the historicity of the devil. So people want to deny that he was real, that he is real, that he's, uh, they want to make him out to be some created, fabricated being. And, I'm suppo- and I suppose there are certain... Uh, myths about the devil that have been created that are not accurate. You know, there he is, that red creature with a a pointed tail and horns coming out of his head and a pitchfork and people visualize the devil in that way. That's made up. That's not biblical. There's no origin at all for that kind of picture. So there are certainly things that have been manufactured and made up, but the truth is the Bible is very clear that he is a very real person. He's a very real adversary, and if he can get someone to believe that he doesn't exist, and he's not real, and he's not interested in them, and that there is no Satan, and no hell, and no heaven, and then my he he's won a great victory because he's lulled people to sleep in their own lostness and convinced them that everything's okay. I have a whole series on angels, angels among us that serve us and then I have another series entitled angels against us that deal with fallen angels and that can be Found also at searchthescriptures.org. Well, there are some questions we didn't get to today, but uh, we'll do our best if God gives us opportunity to hit them again very soon. As always, it's a pleasure to be here with you for the Bible line. Come join us uh, this Sunday at Community Bible Church. If you don't have a church home, we would love to have you. We also have a midweek service every week at 630. The worship time starts. Uh some are coming from work, that always starts at seven. We'd love to have you for that as well. Hope you have a great day. Continue to walk with Jesus who is Lord.